Well, please turn now to the book of Exodus and chapter 20 on page 74 of the church Bible, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. We're continuing to work through the Ten Commandments in our services, and we come this morning to the Sixth Commandment in Exodus 20 verse 13, you shall not murder. It's a short reading. You shall not murder. It is a very short and apparently straightforward commandment. There doesn't seem to be much room for gray areas or confusion, and yet all kinds of questions are raised in relation to the sixth commandment. And one of the reasons for that confusion is the poor translation of some English versions. Uh, The King James Version, in many ways, is an excellent translation, uh, but it is very unhelpful when it comes to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. And that is misleading, because it seems to prohibit the taking of all life in all circumstances, a blanket prohibition on any kind of killing. The mugger who knifes an innocent passerby on the street, the soldier who shoots an enemy on the battlefield, the person who swats a wasp, they're all killers, and the commandment says that you are not to kill. Does that mean that they are all guilty then of sinning, breaking this commandment? And of course, the answer to that question is no, because this commandment does not prohibit all killing. It doesn't, uh, this Hebrew verb that's used here does not describe killing in general. There's another Hebrew word that, that means killing in general. This word describes a particular kind of killing, murder. And that's why the ESV is much, much better you shall not murder. It's almost always used of the unlawful, premeditated killing of another human being. It is only ever used of human beings as the victims. And that means that there are certain cases where killing is permitted. And that is what the rest of Scripture, which elaborates on the Ten Commandments, bears out for us. And there are three main instances where killing is permitted. The killing of animals is the first of these three. The sixth commandment does not prohibit the killing of animals. And that should be obvious to us because the killing of animals is either explicitly permitted or even commanded by God in certain situations. There are times in the Bible where it would be a sin not to kill an animal. For example, in the Old Testament sacrifices, large numbers of animals, vast numbers of animals were killed for this purpose. And the reason why they needed to die was to teach people that sin is so serious that only the death of a substitute, an innocent substitute, only the shedding of blood, only the taking of innocent life 
could deal with the guilt of sin. It wasn't enough just to kill a plant. It had to be an animal. It had to be a living creature. And that was pointing forwards, of course, to the death of Christ. And that's why these Old Testament sacrifices are no longer practiced today. It's not because we've, we're more enlightened and we don't think that that kind of cruel treatment of animals is appropriate. It's because Jesus Christ has come, the Son of God, to whom all these sacrifices were pointing forwards. Another way that animals were permitted to be killed was for food and clothing. And again, God himself sets the pattern for this in Genesis 3 verse 21, where he provides animal skins as coverings for Adam and Eve. He doesn't give them another better made suit of fig leaves sewn together. He kills animals and provides them with animal skins to cover them. And then after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, God gives man permission to use animals for food. Up to this point, they were not killed for food, but from now on, for the better preservation of the human race, presumably as, as, as the curse does its work over the generations, uh, a, a purely plant-based diet wasn't enough to sustain human life. And so God permits men to kill animals for food. Now, a Christian may decide to be a vegetarian or even a vegan for any number of reasons, but it cannot be because he or she believes that it is wrong in principle to kill animals for food. We dare not make ourselves more moral than God himself. God says that we may eat animals for food. And then also animals may be killed for managing the earth's resources. God appointed man to be the steward of this planet on his behalf. In Genesis 1, 26 and 28, man is to rule the earth and subdue it. And of course, human beings have always sinfully abused that position as the ruler of earth's resources, wiping out whole species for the sport of killing or for economic greed. But if animals are getting out of hand, we have a duty to control their numbers, even by culling. There is nothing wrong in principle with the practice of culling animals. Now, it should be done as humanely as possible. We should, I think, as Christians, have issues with fox hunting, for example, not because we have a a problem with pests being kept under control or because we believe that the fox has an inherent right to life, but because it's such a barbaric, cruel way in which the fox is killed. Killing is not meant to be a leisure activity. It's not meant to be a sport for sport's sake. I think it's important that we're, we're clear on this. The reason I'm, I'm mentioning this is because the whole issue of killing animals is filled with all kinds of misconceptions. Uh, there is this rise uh, of the idea that we shouldn't be eating meat at all and we should all be eating only vegetables. 
uh, or that we should all become vegans. Uh, and that may well be, that may well become a prevailing ethos in our culture. But that does not come from Scripture. And as Christians, we need to stand against that kind of thinking on principle. The New Age movement, of course, teaches that all nature is one and that humans and animals are all really on a level. We're all part of the same great reality. Evolution teaches the same thing in a slightly more sophisticated way, that we're all related. It's just that some species are more evolved than others. And there are extreme animal rights campaigners and they don't even sound all that extreme nowadays. They're, they're much more mainstream than they used to be. But there are animal rights campaigners who argue that animals are entitled to the same rights as human beings. And that all life is equally valuable. Well, the Bible teaches that all life is valuable. But it does not teach that all life is equally valuable. As we'll see, human beings, human life, is in a class all of its own. So we're permitted to kill animals under certain conditions. A second area in which we're permitted to kill is capital punishment. Capital punishment is not prohibited by the sixth commandment. This verb, you shall not murder, that verb is not ever used in relation to capital punishment. And again, we need to be careful that we don't set ourselves up as being more moral than God himself. He is the standard of what is right and what is wrong. And whatever we may think about capital punishment, as Christians, the one thing that we cannot say, dare not say, must not say, is that it is wrong in principle. Because the principle of capital punishment has been revealed to us by God himself. In Genesis 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. And that principle is restated then in the law in Leviticus 24:17 if anyone takes the life of a human being he must be put to death not he may be put to death we should think about putting him to death he must be put to death and that's interesting again just as we thought about animals because in verse 21 of the same chapter Leviticus 24:21 it says whoever kills an animal must make restitution but whoever kills a man must be put to death there is a world of difference between killing an animal and killing a human being and that's reaffirmed in the New Testament, in Romans 13, verse 4, if you do wrong, be afraid, for the state does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So the state has the power of the sword. He does not bear the sword for nothing. Now, the Old Testament is often caricatured 
as if people were being executed left, right, and center at the drop of a hat in the Old Testament. And that is completely wrong. Uh, That's a gross caricature. There are only 13 capital crimes that are listed in the Old Testament. In Britain, at the end of the 18th century, there were about 350 capital crimes for which a man or a woman could be put to death. Capital punishment was abolished in Britain in 1969, but the debate was not characterized by informed, intelligent discussion. It was carried out very much on an emotional level. And there's no doubt that there have been terrible miscarriages of justice when innocent people have been put to death uh, when they shouldn't have been. But with stringent safeguards, we should practice capital punishment for murderers. It is the only adequate punishment for the ultimate crime against another human being. The Bible differentiates, of course, between murder and manslaughter, killing and self-defense, and it's very clear that the murderer deserves death. Manslaughter doesn't carry a, a capital charge, but murder does, and it should today. So the murder, the killing of animals is permitted, the killing and capital punishment is permitted. And then the third category is war. War. The Bible does not allow us to be pacifists. Now that doesn't mean that we agree with any and every war that our government may conduct. But it's interesting, isn't it, when soldiers come to John the Baptist and they ask him as they come to repent of sin as they come to be baptized. They ask him, what should we do? John the Baptist does not say, well, the first thing you need to do is stop being soldiers because it's wrong for you to kill. Jesus and the apostles never tell soldiers that they need to resign from the army. And of course, there are many times in the Old Testament when God commands the Israelites to go to war to kill many, many people in the course of war. And that may be to stop the sins of other nations. It may be to punish other nations. It may be to protect those who are vulnerable. It may be to protect freedom. We may object to particular wars because their motives and their goals are wrong, but we can't say as Christians that it is wrong for a nation ever to go to war. Again, that would be setting ourselves up to be better and wiser than God. War is always an inglorious thing. It may be necessary to go to war, but we should never exult in it. We should never do it gleefully. We should never be glad that war is necessary. No matter how right the cause might be, It should always be the last resort reluctantly adopted. So this commandment doesn't prohibit taking animal life or taking human life in capital punishment or in war. I want us to spend the rest of the time now looking at biblical reasons 
for the commandment. Why, in other words, is murder wrong? What is it that makes this sin so terrible? And I want to say two things. First of all, because human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. Human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. This is the most fundamental reason why we must not murder. Every human being from the moment of conception is created in the image and likeness of God himself. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Of course, the entrance of sin into the world marred this image of God in human beings. But we are still, every one of us, by virtue of being human, every human being in the world is an image bearer of God. That's the reason why capital punishment is needed. Genesis 9 verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Why is that necessary? For in the image of God has God made man. Now God's image may be more distorted in some people than in others because of sin. But by virtue of being human, that is what we all are. And there are no exceptions to that. Every human being, regardless of physical or mental disability, regardless of race or color or class, is valuable and inviolable because we are image bearers of Almighty God. Rich or poor, Protestant, Roman Catholic, atheist, black or white, gay or straight, it doesn't matter. Every human being, without exception, is an image bearer of God. And as we were thinking about with the children, there's no other creature in the universe in the same category as a human being. We are unique. We are in a class all of our own in the universe. Not even the angels are created in the image of God. This is the reason why animals may be killed, because they're not made in the image of God. In Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 to 9, there's an elaborate ceremony described that needs to be performed if you come across a human dead body. But there was no need to do this if you came across an animal that had died. The only commandment is don't touch the carcass for reasons of hygiene. And paradoxically, this is the reason for capital punishment in Genesis 9 verse 6. Because human life is so valuable, if you take it unlawfully, then you forfeit your own life it's the only punishment that fits the crime. And friends, we need to be so careful that we preserve a high regard for the sanctity of human life because there are so many things in our world that are working together to undermine it. Even our news 
never mind anything else, fictional. But even our news can undermine our regard for the sanctity of life. The graphic pictures, the increasingly graphic pictures that we see in the news of the dead and the dying, people that have been slaughtered in war, people who have starved to death through famine, the, the more we see of that, and of course now that we have 24-hour rolling news and access to it across social media and the internet, uh, we're exposed even more to this than we were maybe 30 years ago or 50 years ago by just watching the evening news. But you, you could spend every minute of every day watching news of death from all over the world. And that can actually desensitize us to the value of human life if we're not careful. You may have heard the quote attributed to Joseph Stalin, the death of one man is a tragedy. The death of millions, that's just a statistic. And, and we, can, we hear every week, don't we? We read of the death of thousands, tens of thousands, even millions of people dying far away. And we don't even blink. It doesn't affect us in any way. We need to be aware of the tendency of news reports to inoculate us against the horror of murder. Every single person murdered is an image bearer of the Lord God Almighty. I think we need to be especially careful about television programs and films and nowadays computer games that we expose ourselves to, and particularly our teenagers, or well, not just teenagers, younger children, teenagers. Anything that hardens our conscience to evil and to the enormity of murder, anything that makes us forget to become desensitized to the precious sanctity of human life and the horror of murder, should be avoided. So films that depend on gratuitous violence for their plot, why would we watch that kind of thing just to be entertained by it? Repeated, prolonged exposure to this kind of stuff makes us forget that each human life taken bears the image of Almighty God. I hope that there's no one here that watches horror films, but it's very hard to see how a Christian could watch horror films where there's the grisly fascination. The whole point is watching people being murdered in gruesome, explicit ways. If you do that, that's something I think you ought to repent of and turn away from. The tragedy of abortion now in our own province is another example of this creeping desensitivity to the taking of human life. God says that life begins at conception 
in that embryo that has just been created in the image of God and to deliberately destroy that embryo in abortion or as a byproduct of fertility treatment or as part of scientific research, that's murder, plain and simple. There's increasing pressure now to explore euthanasia, assisted suicide. And suicide, of course, is increasing in frequency. No human being has the right to take a life, even their own life. It is a gift from God. It's not ours to dispose of as we see fit. Every single murder that we hear about should cause us to weep as we think an image bearer of God has been assaulted. It is an abominable desecration. So it is wrong, it is evil because human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. And then the other reason is that it is wrong because of the nature of the act itself. Because of the nature of the act itself. There is the finality of murder. That's self-explanatory, isn't it? Murder is a crime that cannot ever be undone. No amends can be made in any way. There is no restitution possible for murder. That's why capital punishment exists or should exist. It is the only proper penalty for murder. I said that there were 13 capital crimes in the Old Testament, but all of them except one could be commuted to a lesser penalty. In 12 out of 13 cases, the person didn't have to be put to death. The penalty could be commuted to something less. But murder could not be ever commuted. The murderer could only pay with his own life. In our justice system, so-called, a murderer can be released after just a few years in prison. And even if he serves a life sentence, it still doesn't adequately punish this crime, this evil of murder. And again, there are various factors at work in our society, aren't there, that lessen the terrible finality of murder, that, make, that, that fool us, that trick us into thinking that murder is perhaps not so bad after all. And, and maybe, and again, you young people and teenagers need to be aware of this. It may begin with computer games, with fantasy violence, where someone is blown to pieces one minute and then they get up and they play on the next minute. Or the idea of reincarnation. That's very popular, isn't it, nowadays, that death is a doorway to a new existence. You're just moving up the ladder towards perfection. Or there's the vague pagan idea of a blissfully happy afterlife for all but the very worst in society. Uh, we've all been at funerals, haven't we, where someone has died and they had no time for God whatsoever, no interest in Christ. They never darkened the door of a church. They never prayed. They never read a Bible. And yet they are spoken of as being at rest or in a better place. 
I'm not saying that these things are consciously in the mind of a murderer as he pulls the trigger on a gun or as he stabs someone through the heart with a knife. But perhaps all of these things do feed into a mindset that make it easier to commit murder. It's part of the psychological conditioning of a murderer, the idea that perhaps death isn't so very final after all. But the Bible is clear, isn't it? Hebrews 9:27, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And perhaps if that reality were more widely believed, murder would be much less common. Ending a person's life on earth and sending them to the judgment seat of God. I wonder how many murderers think that that's what's going on as they commit murder. Perhaps they think that they're inflicting just a few moments of pain and then it's all over for the victim when in fact they could be sending them to hell. I think this is particularly relevant to the whole debate on euthanasia and assisted suicide. The great argument is we need to end people's suffering. They have no quality of life. In fact, they're just in torment. And to, to allow them to keep on living with this pain with this agony, it's just torturing them. We need to put an end to their suffering. But of course, if they're not a Christian, all you're doing is speeding up their entrance into hell, into endless suffering that we can't imagine. And it's a sobering thought, isn't it? But one second in hell, and that person who was so eager to escape the suffering in this life will be wishing with all their heart that they could go back to it because it will seem like a bed of roses in comparison to the suffering that they've been hastened into. A second death from which no mercy killing can deliver us. So there is the terrible finality of murder. And then also the widespread, widespread effects of murder. It's another aspect of the nature of the act of murder. It's widespread effects. Because a murder is a little bit like an explosion of a bomb. The shock waves from it spread out and cause terrible damage all around for, for miles and miles. Obviously, there is terrible harm irreparable harm that is done to the victim, but other people are damaged by murder as well. And this is another reason why it is so wrong, why it is prohibited. There's the suffering of the victim's family and friends. Any bereavement, we all know this from experience, any bereavement is hard enough to cope with. But a murder causes deep scars of anger and hatred and resentment and bitterness that may never heal. People will carry those scars. They'll be traumatized by them for the rest of their lives. It will cause all kinds of other knock-on problems psychologically and physically and mentally in their wake. There's the shame and the suffering of the murderer's family. 
You imagine having a murderer in your family, a son or a daughter. You think to yourself, did we contribute in some way? Do we share some responsibility for making him, for making her what they were? Could we have prevented this? Should we have seen something sooner? Murder erodes the stability of our society. Northern Ireland is a prime example of that, isn't it? Communities that are alienated from one another, revenge killings, fear, suspicion, paranoia, deep-seated hatred. And then there's the effect on the murderer himself. What kind of a person murders another? And what does that do to a person? It's crossing a line, isn't it? It dehumanizes those who do it. It desensitizes them. It makes it so much easier to do the same thing again and, of course, to do anything else because if someone's prepared to murder, then what will they not do to harm another person? The finality of murder and its widespread effects. So, for these reasons, we need to remind ourselves of the value and the sanctity of human life. And that word sanctity is is not a word to be taken lightly. It's a, a word that speaks of holiness. Human life is not just valuable. It's not just precious. It's holy. It is inviolable. And we need to remind ourselves of these things often because of the culture in which we live. It's easy to forget everything around us, from the entertainment that we expose ourselves to, to the news that we have to listen to. It it, it all makes it easy to forget. And the more forgetful we are, the more likely we are that we could break this commandment ourselves. We may not ever take out a gun and shoot someone, but as we'll see this evening, God willing, there are many ways in which we could be guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. And so this is foundational in helping us to have a clear, strong conviction of the sanctity of human life to preserve us and guard us against this particular sin. May God help us to keep that at the very forefront of our minds more and more. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we bless and thank you that you have made us in your image and in your likeness. And one of the consequences of that is that we ought to share your abhorrence for this evil sin of murder. We pray that we would seek that vengeance, that we would desire that same judgment uh, that we've been singing of here, that you will meet out to those who commit murder. We pray that this sin will horrify us. We pray that you will forgive us, that it doesn't horrify us as it should, that we can hear of the murder of 
men and women and children on a huge scale and yet be so unmoved. We pray, Lord God, that you will forgive us, that we might even seek to be entertained by the very act of murder being uh, enacted in films and television programs and computer games. We pray, Lord God, that if we are guilty of diminishing the sanctity of human life, that you will forgive us for that, that you will make us aware of that in our own hearts, that you will help us to repent of it. We pray that we would desire that you would act as we have been praying here that you would against those who commit this sin. We pray, Lord God, that you will frustrate, even at this very moment, murderers who are planning to murder, who have already murdered, and who are planning to do so again. We pray, Lord God, that you will be gracious and that you will frustrate their plans, that you will cause them to fall into the trap that they have set for others. Perhaps even in this very community, Lord, we pray that this day you would frustrate the plans of all evildoers and especially those who would murder the innocent. We thank you, Lord God, that Jesus Christ died for all the sins of all his people and that on the cross he bore the punishment even of murderers. We thank you that his blood is able to cleanse us from all sin. And if from this sin, then certainly from all lesser sins of which we could be guilty. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.